hello, hello. You've reached the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast, and I'm so lucky today to have a wonderful guest, Bert Watson. I'm going to go ahead and let you tell, he's going to tell you about his life, and I'm going to be asking him a bunch of questions today, and I'm just so happy to have him here. He is like a ball of energy, and, uh, and, and I, I don't think anyone's ever can deny that. Anyone who's ever met him, uh, he is just... Uh, He's just an amazing person. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Bert, we'll get this going. And uh, hopefully at the end of this, um, all of us are going to be smarter, better people because of it. So you're ready to go? Oh, I'm, I'm more than ready, baby. I'm always ready, you know? So here we go. Um, I know you're the ultimate hype man, the, 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 the most famous site coordinator in the world. So here we go. Uh, so you know what I'd like to know? We're going to kind of start from the beginning. Um, okay. Tell me about yourself growing up. Like, where were you raised? And uh, yeah, just tell me all about yourself. Well, I grew up in Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, you know, city of sisterly affection. I grew up, uh, my family moved to Philadelphia back in 1951 or 52. My mother is Jamaican and my dad is a Charlestonian. He's from Charleston, South Carolina. So I, I grew up in a, in a household with six brothers and sisters and all the relatives that you could think of. Whenever, whenever anyone in my family moved from the South to Philadelphia, they came through my household first. So I had life's lessons in growing up in a large family. Uh, lots of discipline, lots of sharing, lots of learning how to survive and lots of getting along with everybody who you did or didn't want to be in the same room with. So I learned all those things early, but thankfully I had good positive parents who were, were stern and lived good, clean lives and instilled the same thing within our family. And when those things come to you from your family, you learn how to love, you learn how to love each other, and it's very easy for you to move on and learn how to love others around you because that's been instilled in you and you grew up with that. And uh, I grew up in Philly, became uh, a part of the culture, a part of the city itself. Uh, uh, went to high school in Philadelphia. Uh, I left Philadelphia in 1967. And now I'm also telling you my age. I went, off, I went off to college. I went from Philadelphia to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. So now you can imagine the culture shock and the culture change I had going from Philadelphia to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, where I, I got an education in life that I had never had before. You know, here, here's a hood rat moving to the farmland of Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. But I, I had such a great time. I met such good people. Uh, I did college in Scotts Bluff. It was a little bit different. It was the first time that I got exposed to Midwestern lifestyle, lifestyle outside of the city, you know, of, of, of large buildings and cluster of people all around. Uh, I got my first introduction to Native American people who were, were very affluent out in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, lived in different areas. Uh, and, and it was almost to me, coming from the neighborhood, to see how people of different cultures lived in different neighborhoods. So I understood that type of life 
and that type of lifestyle. But it was it was unbelievable to see it in a different form in, in, in the Midwest, Midwestern setting. Uh, but I had a great time. Uh, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I grew a lot and took a lot of my family's life's lessons with me. And that's what I want to ask you, Albert. When you were when, uh, going back to your childhood, uh, I know you just kind of briefly touched on it. What were your goals growing up? And who were your role models? When you, when I, if I were to go back in time and ask you, Bert, uh, the 15-year-old Bert, you know what? Who were your role models? Um, and what were your passions? What was kind of going through your mind at that point of what you wanted to be growing up? You know, at the, at the time, like every kid in, in, in at, a, at a young age, there were athletes that, that, that I, I admired, uh, you know, Dr. J, Muhammad Ali, you know, uh, Lou Alcindor, Jim Brown. Those were guys that, that I admired and, and, and guys I looked up to. And you, you, you always wanted to, you made a decision. Everybody wanted to be either an athlete or an entertainer. You know, if you reached to be a doctor or a lawyer, you had to know that you were pretty smart to want to be that. So the aspirations to be an athlete was always the choice or the better choice, you know, and the lead that we had and the lead you followed. But my inspirations were my parents, my mom and my dad. My mom was a very, very strong individual. She was very, very direct. She took care of our family with ease. She made everything look easy, but at the same time, she made it difficult for us because she was very stern. But it taught us lessons on how not only to survive, but lessons, you know, of, of, of how to choose a positive mindset. And I learned that from her because whether we had good times or difficult times, we always learned how to go and move through those times with each other, no matter what was going on. And on the other hand, my father, who was a very hard worker, my father was an auto mechanic. He went to work every day. Uh, he worked hard every day. He didn't complain about the work. But if he came home and there was food on the table or he put food on the table, he was happy. So I learned that from him and I, I saw him and and you kind of mimicked what what we saw and what we grew up with. My father worked as an auto mechanic. So he came home, his hands were greasy, his clothes were dirty, you know, and he had grease on the back of his neck. But he would walk home and go in the bathroom and take his clothes off and put them in a little pile, neatly, dirty clothes, wash his hands and wash up, and then change his clothes. We saw that. So at that point, we were learning how to, to kind of groom ourselves, how important it was to stay organized, to stay neat and stay clean, and didn't know that those were life lessons that we were learning. But again, it gave us a positive mindset, and it gave me someone to look up to and someone to admire. So if I were to tell you that you know, my admirations and the people that I looked up to in growing up were definitely my parents. 
And, and you went and you so what you went to after high school you you went into college. Right after high school, I went to to college in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. I went to a little small school, Hiram Scott College, Scottsbluff, Nebraska, where I did three years. Uh, and within my third year of college, back then there was the draft. And guys were being drafted into the military, whether you were in college or not. And what they did was they gave you a classification, which was considered a deferment. You had a 1Y, uh, a C or a C2 or whatever, but I got a one-wide deferment, which meant for me that they were going to come in the college. If my grade wasn't good, I was going to get a draft notice and I had to go down and, and register. So what I did was instead of them, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in, in college one day and my mom used to send us mail and letters and information back and forth. And she sent me my very first Ebony magazine. And I'm flipping through Ebony, which was at the time one of the largest African-American magazines and probably still is, uh, along with Essence, you know. I'm flipping through the Ebony magazine and I flipped through about three or four pages in and I saw this brother in a set of dress blues with the white hat, the black jacket, the white belt, and the blue trousers with the red stripe down, down the sleeve. And those, those trousers were creased. I learned creased trousers from my dad. So I looked at that, and that moment, that moment clicked. And I said, you know what? That's where I'm going. So I went and enlisted in the Marine Corps and did three years in the United States Marine Corps and loved every bit of it. What did you learn in the military? Or like what kind of lessons and life lessons and what did that bring you in terms of when you look back on your life and development? Um, what did that bring you? Well, the Marine Corps, first of all, taught you a sense of discipline. You, you, you became very disciplined. You learned how to discipline yourself with time. You learn how to dis discipline yourself with a commitment to something. You learn how to discipline yourself to taking orders uh, and not specifically learning how to take orders, but to condition yourself that if you were in a situation that, that you had to take instructions or orders, such as school or team setting or however, then the military allowed you to do that. Uh, it, it taught you how to do that. It taught you the discipline and it taught you how to go through life with that. It also reinforced a lot of things that I had already learned from my parents, such as being on time, taking care of your surroundings and, 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 and listening and, and knowing that, that, that you were a part of a family setting or an organization. And when you're a part of those things, the group depends on each other. Every part of the group is an intricate part of it. And if one part fails, the rest of it's gonna fail. So you learn to become a part of that system and a part of the 
organizational structure. And I learned that in the Marine Corps, uh, aside from the fact of, of, of keeping my personal appearance to a T and staying clean and staying motivated. And, and you did all those things, again, with a positive mindset, which, which I always believed in it. And and you you never you you didn't have any negative thoughts because you were part of a team and part of a system. Mm -hmm. I I love it. I love that. I love that what you just said because I was going to get to that part was, um, and we'll talk about your career, someone how you started that in a little bit. But how how have you stayed so positive? Have you had some? Have, I'm sure you know all of us go through times where we have very difficult dark times. All of us go through those times. Can you describe some of those times that you've had in your life where you 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 weren't you weren't able to you were going through a difficult time and what got you through that and how did you stay so, so positive and have the strength to get through those difficult times first? Well, I grew up in the '60s. Uh, I grew up during an era of of segregation, uh, an era uh, an era of a lot of racial tension throughout America. You know, when it was really, really a whole different scenario than it is today. But again, going back to my 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 childhood and, and my upbringing, you know, I learned that that before you assess the situation, you had to understand it or try to understand. It's like people listen to you and hear you, you know. When they hear you, it goes over their head. It's just, it's just there. When they listen to you, you digest it. I digested just about everything that came my way. And I didn't meticulous, meticulously try to do that, but that's the way it was. I digested it so I could try to understand it because I learned early in life as an African-American growing up in the 60s that the worst thing you can do is fight the system, you know? And, and I had a little thing in my, within my own head that you can't beat the system, but you can master them at their own game. So if you wanted me to wear a suit, then I'm gonna learn to wear a suit and put a bow tie on because I like bow ties. If you wanted me to dress up every day, then I'm gonna learn how to dress up and iron my slacks and iron my, because I like to look a certain way. I wasn't gonna to try to beat the system, but I was gonna to try to master them at their own game. That worked for me. And it gave me a way to adjust to a lot of things that came my way. And not everything that came my way was digestible, okay? There were a lot of things that came my way that I didn't understand that, you know, were difficult for me to digest. But then I also knew that I had to settle back and understand and assess it before I attacked it or let it attack me. Because when you attack things or let it attack you, you're fighting in the blind. And no one wins a fight like that. You know, when you win a fight, you got to set up, you got to strategically throw it, come, throw that jab slowly. You don't throw that jab here, you throw that jab slowly because you got a pinpoint and you know where you gotta hit. And that's the way you gotta do in life. You know, you gotta, you gotta reach a comfort level of everything 
around you and everybody around you. And I've always tried to do that first, was to reach a comfort level with everyone and everything around me, because then you took the time to not just hear it, but listen to it so you could digest it and then move on from there. I, I love that. I love the fact that you said you have to actually be in the moment and really understand the problem in order to have that solution. I think that's amazing. And, after and, you, have, and you have to do that without judgment. You have to do it without judgment. What do you mean by that? That, that means that, that, that just because something's coming at you negatively doesn't mean that it's totally against you. Doesn't mean that it's totally not for you. It may be coming at you so quickly you haven't take, taken time to understand it, okay? Everything, I didn't take everything that came at me as being racism or being racial. I didn't take everything that came at me as being against me. Now, I didn't say I didn't know it was, <laughs> okay? But I didn't take it as that. I didn't judge it right away. You know, I let it come around a little bit. It's like in the military, in, in the Marine Corps, when I went overseas, you learn you don't have to shake a bush to know what's in it. You just take your time and concentrate on it. And don't judge it too quickly, because if you judge it too quickly, you jump into the wrong situation, you might not get out of it. And, and let me ask you this. Um, yes, I, I love these pearls of wisdom, wisdom that you're that you're giving me and the audience. I really, really I, I'm really enjoying this. I can't get enough of it, actually. So the question I have for you is after you finished, how did how did you get into your profession? Uh, how did you how did you enter the game, uh, so to speak? I, I when I got out of the Marine Corps, I moved. I was married. Well, I was about to get married at the time. I moved to New York and I, I was living in New York and then I got married and moved from New York to, from Manhattan to New Jersey, Ridgewood, New Jersey, which is 30 minutes outside of New York and started a family. And I was commuting back and forth every day on a bus from Ridgewood, New Jersey to New York. And Long story digested, I was walking, I, I, I came into New York on 42nd Street, which was the major bus terminal. I would walk from 42nd and Broadway to 56th and 6th Avenue where I worked. I would take that walk every morning. One morning I'm walking down 42nd Street and there was a car accident. And the car accident stopped the traffic behind it. So all the traffic behind it was stopped because it couldn't get around it because it was a two-way street. So the traffic couldn't because then it would stop the traffic coming in the other direction. So the traffic was stopped. In that traffic, there was a car. And people were getting out of their car to see what was going on and what was happening. And out of that car pops a face that I recognized. That face was Smoking Joe Frazier. Oh, and wow. I... You know, because he was in a limo headed someplace and couldn't move because of the traffic. He gets out of the car to look to see. And I'm, whoa. <laughs> you know, but then again, you don't ever want to act like, my mom always said to me, never ever act like anything's new to you. 
because somebody will take it away from me. So I didn't want to act like, you know, fanboy. So I just walked over and, hey, how you doing? And he, being the person that he was, he replied and, you know, my name is Bert, you know, and he didn't have to tell me his name, but he did. <laughs> and we just kind of exchanged names and talking about what was going on and a little brief conversation and he's in Philly and I'm oh, you know, so am I and yada, yada, yada. So he says to me, listen, let's just, you know, you exchange, kind of exchange numbers, but not like you do today because we didn't have cell phones. You know, back in the day, people lived up to If somebody told you I was going to be someplace on Tuesday at nine o'clock, a month later, they were, there, they were there Tuesday at nine o'clock without somebody sending them a text or an email or a cell phone. Back then, we had none of that. We just word of mouth. So we communicated and I knew he was in Philly and where the gym was. And he said, if you ever, when you're back in Philly, call the gym. And one thing led to another. And I did that. And we did connect and we communicated. And the rest is a part of history. Because from that meeting and that phone call and us connecting, we became very good friends. Uh, uh, I went to one fight, which was March 8th, 1971. But I went through it on a closed screen situation, but knew Joe Frazier. And when I went to Philadelphia, I visited the gyms and visited him and we went back and forth and the friendship led to a business partnership and I eventually became his manager. Wow. Um, wow. That's amazing. So, I mean, how, so were you working another job at the time? And then he said, Hey, you know, I, I mean, what were you doing? What were you doing? And then is it, I mean, for you to give up one, this other part of your life to start this other part of your life, how did that develop? And, that, that's a pretty big leap of faith on your part, too, right? Uh, well, you will never believe this. Well, kind of. Remember I told you how through my father I always learned how to keep myself neat and pressed and put dirty clothes in one pile and pick up? You know, I kind of kept that, and that stayed in my head. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, I started in fashion. No way. <laughs> I went wow. to... I went and if you can see on my wall back here, I got a thing from Mayor School of Fashion Design and the division of FIT. I, I graduated. I learned pattern making. I learned grading. Wow. And I never told anybody that. But I can probably outsell you, bro. Trust me. <laughs> I, I never, <laughs> if you would have told me before we had started that you had that background, I would say, no way. That's Let amazing. me tell you something. Fifth Avenue, fashion designing, that's where I was headed because that's what I what I did. And I eventually, I started working for Burlington and I sold, manufact I sold peace goods to manufacturers of men's suits. Hickey Friedman, Brooks Brothers, you know, and sat in the boardroom with these designers. I was not artistic, but I could sew, I could stitch, and I had creative ideas. I eventually got hired from them to Levi Strauss. And I, 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 I joined the sales force in Levi Strauss. I became rookie of the year. I got a plaque on my wall for that. So I was in a whole different genre, fashion. And meeting, you talk about a leap of faith, and meeting Joe Frazier, and then going back and forth to Philly, and just communicating with him 
Levi Strauss was about to move me permanently to Columbus, Ohio. And at the time I said, you know, <laughs> I think I had enough of the Midwest, okay? I'm not going to, back to Columbus, Ohio. So I kept communicating, you know, commuting back and forth. And I was in the process. Levi gave me a decision. You're either going to move to Columbus, Ohio, or we're going to have to figure this out. And I went to Philly trying to figure it out, kept hanging out with Joe Frazier. We're moving back and forth, and we're hanging out. And we hung out, and Joe Frazier, uh, at the time, he was retired. Well, he had just finished. His last fight was 1981 against Jumbo Cummings. So he decided to enjoy life, and I had to enjoy life with him. So we were hanging out and hanging out and running and hanging out, and I was still trying to make a decision what I was going to do. And finally, out of nowhere, you know, because Joe Frazier and I were going out and hanging out, I don't want to say getting drunk, but we were drinking, and it was tough for me to do that all night and then go to work the next morning at 8 or 9 o'clock. So I said to Joe Frazier one day, I said, you know what? You got to do one of two things. You got to either hire me or leave me the hell alone. Wow. He hired me. Wow. And you, so you became his manager. So how, yes, how did you learn how to do that when you had no experience? Where do you start? Like, where do you start with that? Again, it, 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 it comes, by, comes down to a positive mindset, you know, and they say, put your feet to the fire and trial by error. I had all those things in once, you know, advantage, energy, positive thinking, positive thoughts, you know, reduce your nervousness. All those things I had to put into one because I had absolutely no idea what it was like to manage anyone, specifically someone in professional sports. So I, I, I had to throw all those things and all those life lessons into a patch to try to make this happen. Like I said earlier about not judging too quickly, you kind of lay back and instead of just hearing it, you listen to what, I listen to everything. And the good part was that Joe gave me the opportunity, but he didn't try to manage me. He had a gym, he had fighters, who he had to move, who he had to to do promotional shows, and at the same time, he had to make a living off of his name, which was not a hard thing to do. And a lot of times, phone calls just came into me, but I had to create a scenario that was comfortable for both Joe Frazier and the phone caller. I had to create a scenario that was comfortable for all of his fighters and the gym and the promoters and possibly the television networks that we were going to wow. be working with. Wow. So I had to learn all of those things on a fly, on a rush, without any type of 101, okay? Uh, but were you, were, you it, ever, were you ever scared, Bert? Were you, was there ever times you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with this, how do I deal with this? And, and where did that, where did that strength come from to get through that diff those difficult times where you're like, you know, I don't know where I'm going to go with this. <laughs> what am I going to do? 
I was on, I was only afraid of failure. I was never afraid of the task that was put in front of me because I also believed that if someone gave you or put something in front of you to do, then they had the confidence that you could do it. And I learned early on, again, from my parents and in the Marine Corps, there's no such thing as no, or I can't. You either do it or you leave it alone. And I wasn't going to leave it alone, so I got it done. My only fear or the fear I ever had was of failing, failure. And doing whatever it was that I do and not having that person call me back to do it again. Those were the, the only fears that I had. But the fear of, of, of what was put in front of me and to get it done, as long as no one gave me something to do and, and, and tried to tell me how to do it, you know, I had no problem. I, I just went on and I did it and I paid attention to everything. I, I made sure I got a comfort level with everyone, with everyone and everyone around me. I made sure of that. And with those things in mind, it was easy for me, just like just now I'm talking to you and that phone rang and I handled that, okay? <laughs> yes, and not missing a beat. I might've got off camera a little bit, but, but you know, my only fear was a failure. Getting the job done and the task at hand was never ever anything because I, of the positive mindset, and and I didn't never really really get nervous, you know, and 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 I never had real negative thoughts. So that combination helped me get through a lot of those things, all of them, and it works. And then, so then, how did it grow out? I mean, it 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 just it, it mushroomed. It became it, yes. uh, it became a massive business for you. And how did that happen? And after Joe Frazier, how did this get bigger and bigger for you? And and then and it bring it brought you to the point of working with with Bellator today. How how did this happen? I I I was with Joe, and as I said, he had he had fighters, and the majority of them were his relatives. Uh, that we had to produce a fight for and get television deals and work out television deals and work out, create television scenarios and venues and find a venue that was conducive to what we had and the fighters that we had. And all the things I'm saying to you now are the things that I do as a coordinator and the things that I learned how. As I was going along, I was learning television and television production and camera lighting and setups and working behind the scenes and doing all those things. And so I was creating what Burt Watson does today. I was creating coordinator. I was creating somebody that knew how to put things together and coordinate an event. And I did that. And as I was doing that, I also got exposure to a lot of people that I probably that I would have never in my lifetime you know I met Nelson Mandela which when he got out of prison which I would have never done on my own but because of Joe Frazier and the connections that I had I got to meet him uh, uh, I worked with HBO and Showtime and by putting on events and 
by back then it was more word of murder word of mouth than anything if you did a good job for somebody and they were they were doing it when you promoted an event there was always more than one promoter involved if there was 12 fighters there might have been five or six promoters involved so word of mouth one promoter said hey man i, I like the job you did uh, i got a show such and such and such and such can you come and do this that's when the idea of becoming an independent contractor came into my head because if i was committed to someone else i probably couldn't do the same thing because it would have been some kind of competitive move mm -hmm. and joe frazier allowed me to do that he said man go ahead and do it go ahead and do it and that's wow. how i started i got i got bounced around from joe frazier to lou duva to butch lewis and michael spinks uh, uh cedric kushner who uh, and butch lewis who had also had bernard hopkins wow. who later wow. became a world champion and hbo who was doing mike tyson and oscar de la hoya and julio cesar chavez so that connection kind of clicked me in to a point where even HBO and Showtime, when they would they gave dates to a promoter, they would say, well, who have you got doing your coordinating? And if they didn't, and they said, well, where are you located, yada, yada. Couple of times they said, listen, we got a guy, we know a guy that you can bring in to coordinate. Not that I was the, the deal closer, but you know what? They threw me in there and I did it. And I ended up, coordinating events for boxers and networks and working with Roberto Duran and Sugar Ray Leonard and, and Hector Camacho, Macho Time, uh, doing Mike Tyson. I did Mike Tyson's last six fights, Oscar De La Hoya. The, the only person that I didn't, I had never worked with was Lennox Lewis. Anybody else on some level, I worked and that's how that happened in boxing. And I was doing a Costa Zoo and Zab Judah. I keep getting this mixed up between Costa Zoo and Zab Judah and Oscar De La Hoya and Arturo Gatti, but I was doing a fight in the late 90, 98, 99 in Vegas. And the promoter comes to me and he says to me, listen, I got a guy who, is going to do a some kind of wrestling thing or something. I don't know what it is, but he needs a coordinator. Wow. So I'm going to introduce you, and you work that out. He introduced, I said, well, I can't do it now because I'm getting ready to do a weigh-in, so later on I can do it. He introduces me to Dana White, and this was in 1999. Wow. wow. And Dana was... I'm starting this organization and yada, 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 yada. And, you know, I'm putting a team together. And my word was pay me and respect me. You got me. Plain and simple. So, and, so he, they, and he so, did that. So you were, so you were, you were, you were how did, how did, how did you evolve into um, uh, motivating the fighters before the, before the events? Uh, I can't even well, tell you how many times I'd watch a, I'd watch a UFC uh, before a UFC fight began. I see you energizing everybody, and it seemed like every fighter that met you 
your energy is so contagious. They, 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 it's like they, re the fight almost is, is very interesting how he evolved, but over time it was like, you know what? It wasn't the UFC if you weren't there. If I didn't see you there, it wasn't the UFC. So how did that, I mean, how did that evolve and where did you get that? Did someone mention that to you one day? Cause you're the site coordinator. What got, right. you, what got you started to do that? Well, I, I, I always believed in, 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 in reaching a comfort level with everybody because once you reach the comfort level, you learn to understand, you learn to listen, and you learn to hear and listen at the same time. Because earlier I said some people hear and it goes over, you listen and you digest it. But I learned that working with athletes you know, that they are so involved in performance and and improving their performance and getting through difficult times. Mm -hmm. You know, that that by the time they got through training and weight cutting and coming in, they needed a little motivational speech. I don't want to say speech, but you talk to them because the power of words, the power of wording you know, means so much to an athlete or an entertainer or a fighter. The fact that you listen to them and listen to what they say, nothing they say should be, you know, minute. Anything they say, if they say it to you, they want you to hear it and they want you to understand it. So I started doing that because it also started to make my job easier when I got to that comfort level and again the positive mindset with these guys and, and, and keeping any negative thoughts out of their head because I know what they had to do in the course of a week. So I started running a part of my coordination like that, getting the comfort level, touching these guys, talking to them, listening to them, and listening to them genuinely. And one thing I learned is that Fighters and athletes, they know when you're sincere, baby. They know when you're really listening and you're really trying to understand what they're saying. Whether you understand why they're doing it or not, but you understand that they're doing it. And when I started to understand and feel that, and I started to pull that, pull that in, like I said, the power of words, uh, then I said, you know what? I, I've helped them this far. Let me, because I, I, I would see guys cut weight. You know, during the course of a week, you got four fighters. Now I'm talking of combat sports. You got the guy that accepted the fight. You got the guy that got there and had to cut weight. You had the guy, the guy that either made weight or didn't made weight. And then you got a whole different guy fight night. That's four different people that you have to deal with during the course of the week. And I learned that. And you have to touch every one of them all at the same time. So that when he was here, by the time he got to the fourth person getting in that cage or that boxing ring, he knew that you were the one person that understood what he was doing and, and why he had to do it. And whatever you asked him to do, he did it with ease because you had that comfort level. So that's when I started to really 
get involved and talk to these guys and let them know that, you know, this is what you do and why you do it. And nobody else does it any better than you do. It's your night. It's your fight. Get it right, baby. And if you can't do it, remember, son, ain't but two, him and you. Somebody's got to get out of there. I started talking to these guys, and I started letting them know that I understand this, and I feel this, and don't let anybody else misunderstand what it is. And I try to, to let them know that what you're doing, this is not just a profession for you. It's a lifestyle. You eat, sleep, breathe, drink. You train hard. You get your family involved. You get your loved ones involved. People come in and tune in to see you. Let them walk out and tune out talking about you. And that's what you got me started now. I'm no, no, no. I, you know, Bert, I, I love this because it, you know what? It's you're so authentic and you have their best interests at heart. And they knew that you had, they knew you had their best interests at heart. So you know what? It has so much impact because you have so much passion about and you love what you do. And, and that comes out in, in the interview with that we're having today, but in all parts of your life. And, and that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on here for, is, is for exactly that reason. And part of the reason I interviewed um, um, Brian, uh, the last podcast, mm -hmm. is because mm -hmm. you, you, your genuine passion for what you do comes out in everything that you do. And, and, and did you ever have a situation where a fighter where he, you knew he was so nervous that you had to step in and really, really do an extra, I, I guess, an extra motivation job that day because maybe they were afraid. Or because I think when you go into a fight, I think most people will tell you, you know, if you're not, if you're not afraid, you're not human. I mean, that's right. not human. Right. Did you ever get in a situation where, like, uh oh, I don't know if I can make this fight happen? It may not happen. <laughs> I've got to really motivate. Well, 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 let me tell you something, Martin. I've had, I've seen a guy pass out in the locker room. I've had them kind of get rid of their lunch in the locker room before going out. I've had them go into, and I'm not going to mention names, I've had them go into, go into a stall and refuse to come out because the nerves had set in. They passed out. I've had them leave the dress room and say, I'll be right back. I'm going to the bathroom and actually go back to their room because I knew that the bathroom time was a little, little longer than they said. So the nerves and, and, and the guys not wanting or getting to a point where they didn't want to do it. I've seen that and I've had that happen and I've had the talk to them off of that cliff, so to speak. And I, I, I've had it happen in the locker room. I've had it happen in the holding area where, where there was one guy that was so nervous and had gotten so upset, but I, but I knew that his family was there. So I went and I got his son and I brought his son back. And I said, listen, when that music start, we're going to walk you to that cage. Wow. Me, you, and your son. Wow. And we did that. And you know what? And he walked to the cage and he, and he got it. I had a guy once 
and they all have little idios that 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 they go through you know one sock on one sock off you know certain mask or hat or something on or or a certain outfit away a certain way of putting things on and i had a guy that had a mask on his face and i didn't know what that mask meant uh -oh. and i went to touch it to take it off and he freaked out he fell apart oh no <laughs> he fell apart because i broke that ritual and i and, and this luckily i had enough time to take him back to the dressing room i said i want to take you back in that dressing room i want you to go back in there and i want you to start all over again and i'm going to call you and i'm not going to be there good for you wow and just what i did i took him back whatever he did before he did it again and he came out and i walked him walked into the cage but it's it's i've, I've had few instances and only once I had someone pass out where the fight didn't happen, and hey, that was once. Let me ask you real quick. I'm going to digress a little bit. Um, Bert, how are you, you know what? When you started this, you said that um, you're the site manager. You're doing all these things. Uh, can you give people an idea of how you stayed so organized? Because you really taught yourself. I mean, you really came from a point of zero, and now you're managing you know, a, a fight, you might have, you know, 50,000 people at an event and, yes. and there's gotta be like a hundred things going on. And I, I'm sure you had to bring in a staff. How do you manage that? What, what kind of advice would you give the people out there in terms of how you organize things and how do you, how do you kind of conceptualize all of this in your mind every, before an event? Well, I, 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 I always start again with a positive mindset. And, and and never let negative thoughts run in your performance. You know, it, 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 when you don't do that and you got a positive mindset, you reduce that nervousness so that you don't get nervous. And and you don't, you know, you don't judge, make the wrong judgment, you know. And, and once you do that, and the fact that, you know, I've been very fortunate to have good people around me meaning the people that I've hired and the staff people that I have brought on. But then the people that have hired me have always had enough confidence in what I did that they didn't try to tell me what to do. So it didn't disrupt my flow or it didn't disrupt anything that I was doing. And as I was going along and fight by fight, I was creating what my job description would be. And I took each step and I took it along and I enhanced on it and I created a little more and I made it a little better and made it a little easier and made it a little broader so I could bring more people in, but at the same time, not lose control of what I had to do or how I was doing it. So after a while, Martin, it became very easy because it was a part of, like I say, when it's it's when you do it so long and so much of it, it's no longer a profession. It's a lifestyle, and that's it became my lifestyle. I was used to going to sleep in Chicago and working up, waking up in Japan, going to sleep in Japan and waking up in Brazil, and still having to do the same exact thing. Maybe not even speaking the language, and getting people to help me that didn't speak. That my language, but I had to 
transmit what I needed to do more with my body language and more with my attitude than anything else. So it, it, it became very easy for me. And as I went along, it became better. It got better and it got to a point now that, you know, and, and I, when I started doing MMA with the UFC was in 2000, UFC 30. And I put together a system and a program and a way of doing things that I actually see a lot of it be still being done today with other various organizations because somehow over the past 23 years, I've worked with just about every major MMA organization there is. And I can, I see things that, I, you know, I don't want to take the, you know, take the juice, <laughs> but I see things that, that I created for myself that are still very much a part of it. Very much. It's, it's your it's your it's your life version. I think um, so many fighters that you are an inspiration to them, and um, and you're an inspiration to many of us because I don't think there's ever been a time where I I didn't see you on there, and I and and your your spirit kind of flows through the television sometimes. I, I mean, I I mean, you get me so energetic and happy, and it makes me smile. And I, I love. Yeah, and I think I think, um, and you hear that from the fighters afterwards when they when they when you mention your name, um, everybody smiles. And I think that uh, you know that's going to be one of your uh, legacies is when when you're when you're gone from this earth, you're going to be able to. There's going to be so many people when they say Burt Watson, they're gonna it's going to bring a smile to your face because you did it with such passion and 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 just you were so genuine and. <laughs> I appreciate, you know, I appreciate that so much. It it comes it it comes from a deep place, you know. And I'm saying that to you, Martin, because I feel it. And when I hear guys, you know, I talk to guys. I I, I right now I do. Uh, I'm with Bellator, and and I'm having such a such a good time, and I, I get to see people that I've worked with you know, in the UFC that have been around and, you know, you, you hear it, you hear some of the things that they say and they remember things and they remember things that I have forgotten. But, you know, the, the power of words and, and, and you know, the, the, the power to help people get through difficult times to improve their performance or improve themselves. I hear that and I see that and that, that makes me, you know, I, I, I do a, a Legends to Legends. I had to throw that little dirty plug in there. I do I do that little podcast where I, I sit with actual legends. Uh, and it's it's so awesome because it's not an interview. I am talking to them about things we have lived together. You know, and I did one just recently with George St. Pierre. And he told me how how I got to him one time in a fight. You know, and and how I made him nervous once, and I I had no idea that I had done that. And you hear George St. Pierre say that, or you hear that from Anderson Silva, or or Rampage, or any one of those guys. You know, uh, uh, you know, I, I I saw Bernard Hopkins, 
who is the former middleweight champion of the world boxing. I saw him about six months ago, and he's talking about times we had. You know, uh, so I, I got to ask you a couple things because I I, I want to be respectful of your time because I'm telling you right now, Bert, I could talk to you for ten hours and it would be no problem with me <laughs> because just I, I would learn so much from you. Yes. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it. I'll, I'll ask you a few questions and I'll try to okay. get to them pretty quick. Um, if if there was one person that you uh, that you could meet in your lifetime that you have not met, and Ooh. and uh, and and it could be he or she, and what would you like to say to that person? One person you get to choose. Barack Obama. And I heard you met Barack Obama, so that's a good that's a good segue. How did give me that quick story? <laughs> I I I'm, I was in a show in Pittsburgh. And I was in my room getting things in order to 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 get the workout room set up. And my room was right near the fitness center. I'm on my way out the fitness center. I see these guys coming down the hall, and I'm turning around to go to the fitness center. And the guy says to me, sir, where are you going? And I could tell the way he said, sir, that he was law enforcement. Okay. <laughs> Being a hood rat from Philly, you know that sound. Okay. And I turned and I said, I'm going to the fitness center to check to make sure that things are working, the sound is working. They looked at each other and they said, okay, we got to go in there with you. So they took me in there. They took me in there. I went in there and I heard this pedaling. And when I turned around and looked around the curtain, there was Barack Obama sitting on a bike pedaling. Wow. I was... Uh, you know, I was stunned that it was him, and I wanted to say so many things to him that I couldn't because Secret Service was there, number one, and that how, you know, to live my lifetime and to actually witness and see an African-American become president of the United States, which we thought would never, ever, 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 ever happen. And for me to be there in that room with that guy, you know, I, you know, the only thing that came to my mind was like, what's up? <laughs> That's and he said, uh, how are you? And, uh, and then I had to turn around and walk out. I, I didn't know what to say. That's but I would, if I could meet him for, again with the conversation, that would be the person that I would want to have a conversation with. And what would you ask him, Bert, real quickly? What would you ask him? What's the one question? If I said you could ask him one question, what would that be? What was the hardest part of being president of the United States? What was it? What was the hardest thing that he had to do or endure? And how did he secure his family through that? Amazing. Okay, so here we go. Uh, your bucket list. What is your, uh, is there anything left on your bucket list, Bert? Anything, that you, uh, I, anything you want to do? Anything else you want that you have not done? I, I can't think of anything that I have not done, honestly. I've been everywhere that I could think of in this world. I have, I, have, I have a wonderful family. I have four children and five grandchildren who I am very proud of. One of my grandsons graduated from Yale. My other 
granddaughter is headed to William and Mary and yada. So, and I, I have a wife and I, I live to see my mother and father and I see my siblings. Uh, I'm afraid of height. So I wouldn't give jumping off of whatever or going to the Eiffel Tower because I was there and wouldn't go up top. I'm never going to bungee jump. I'm never going to go to the Grand Canyon. Okay. I sit on an airplane by a window and shut it because I'm afraid of heights. So okay. let me ask you this. Here we go. The other question is, and I, I want to, I just, I know there'll be a, it's a difficult question, but what is the difference between, um, uh, I would say when you first got into the industry to now, what's the difference in terms of generation? Is there a generational difference? And um, I don't want to say it's a negative or positive, but what, what are some of the positive things and what are some of the things that maybe are, that you wish that, that they would kind of go back in time to maybe ad, ad, adapt or adopt in terms well, of the way they the look one, at it? The one thing that I, I see in the industry that, that I'm, I'm, amazed by is the technical skill level of the athletes, how they have developed, how how technically skilled they are, regardless of their size or their weight, their height. You know, they have learned how to master combative sports and boxing, mixed martial arts, gymnastics, you know, singing, all of it. I am I am amazed. I look at gymnastics and see these people doing nine flips at one time, you know, and and I look at MMA and I see the skill level. I saw the skill level of from a Randy Couture to a George St. Pierre to to Israel now and 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 you know Masvidal and Connor and and I saw Muhammad Ali and what he did. And then I saw Conor McGregor and what he's doing. So I'm, I'm used to that. And I see it. The one thing that I would say that I see a little is respect for your fellow man. Respect for the athlete. Not just because he's in the game with you and because he's in that certain game, but just have respect. Have respect for him on social media. Have respect. You can trash talk. You can trash talk without trash downing people. You can you can you can get in somebody's head without negatively bringing in family members or you know. I don't want to get too much into that, but I, I just want I would like to see the respect level maintained a little more, you know. And if you got any, if you got a beef, get in that cage or that ring, bro. Aim but two, him and you. That's where you go get it done, not outside. So you've seen that, Bert. You've seen that that the fighters, they're different people when they're not on social media as opposed yes. to us. And you've seen that before. So a lot of times they are friends and they have respect for one another, but because maybe their management or maybe somebody's pressuring, hey, in order to make money, you have to do this and this. So they do those things, not necessarily because they don't like each other, but because they have a lot of a, a, a lot of different pressures on them. But you, you know what, Martin? I'll say what I what I think it is is that the athlete himself thinks that that's the way to do it. Gotcha. Think that that's how I gotta. That's how I become famous. That's how I have to sell. Mm -hmm. You know, not only do I have to fight, but I have to fight with somebody at the same time. And you know what? I can say whatever I want to say. 
you know, when I see them get on, on, and, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, but that's okay. I'm OG. Shit. When I, see, when I see them get on different platforms and the use of certain language and the disrespect for, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. And you don't have to do that to elevate yourself because that's not what you use when you get in the gym and you're working on your skills. You don't use none of that. True. You either have it or you don't get it. And a lot of people say, oh, this is not my first rodeo, but yeah, you still can't ride a horse, okay? And you know, but I'm gonna say this, it seems, to, it seems like a theme throughout this whole conversation today is the power of language and the power of, of listening, which I really, really, I really, really appreciate that because that's kind of been a theme in everything you've said is just be careful with the power of language and what and and how people receive that. And yes, uh, I, I appreciate. It. Well, let me add these are two final questions here. Yes. Um, uh, if you could give uh, our wonderful audience advice, life advice, um, what would that be? And in order to stay positive in life and um, and to overcome difficulties, and what do you want to be remembered uh, by? I would say to everyone to always breathe and think about things and keep a positive mindset and don't be judgmental with everything that comes your way because it doesn't have to be judged. It'll tell you what it is when it gets close enough to you. Don't just hear what somebody's saying, listen to what they're saying so you can digest it. When you digest, you understand more so than you hear it, you only react, you know? And if there's anything I wanna be remembered is that I always wanna be understood and I always wanna know that I made somebody happy. And that sounds cliche, but I love for people to look at me and smile because they mean it and not because they just giving me that little fake S-H-I. Well, you, know you you certainly made me smile a lot in my life and many of the people that I know as well. And and thank you so, so much for taking uh, time this morning on the East Coast to speak with me. It's been such a pleasure. And uh, just thank you. And thank you for giving me the energy to um, live a better life. So thank you. Wow. And, I, and I'll tell you something. I see the, the, the name of your podcast is the hyper guy motivational podcast i wish i had thought of that first okay <laughs> you know it, it, it kind of it kind of fits in but you know i appreciate you having me and and anytime at any time i'm always available and i love giving energy because that's what i do you know and and it helps you to deal with difficult times and prove your performance and your thought process in dealing with people and you know, you motivation makes you want to remember, and that's kind of what I like to do. Well, just know you always have a friend over, uh, a friend with me here in Cali, and uh, yes, and, and again, uh, thank you so much for for everything, and uh, and and thank you, Brian, for helping produce this, and uh, have a wonderful day out there, my man.